0: Hello and welcome back once again to the Inquisitor podcast. For those of you who've been listening for a while, I've got a repeat, repeat guest who I am genuinely delighted to have back, Bob Nester. He is the founder of the Rewired Group. He's an adjunct lecturer to the Kellogg School of Management. He's a lifetime innovator. If you look at his list of mentors, they are the who's who. Genichi Taguchi, W. Edwards-Deming, Willie Hobbs-Moore, and Dr. Clay Christensen. So you are in very, very good hands when it comes to understanding the job to be done. And we're going to be tackling some really meaty topics today. So without any further ado, Bob,
1: welcome. Marcus, thanks for having me back. Excited to share and talk about kind of uh, learning to build. So, You've come out with this new book, Learning to Build. And
0: like I mentioned, you've got this phenomenal pedigree of mentors. Why
1: did you write this book now? Yeah. So, well, first of all, Clay, uh, who was kind of the what I would say was my last living mentor, passed away in January of 2020, right before the pandemic. And part of it was very, uh, very emotional for me and realizing, you know, just how big a role he played in my life. But then the other thing that happened is... Uh, I have four children. My youngest child moved out and all of a sudden we started to clear out the house. And I, I found what what I thought were all my notebooks. And they were, it was almost 800, over 847 notebooks of, from the last 20 yeah. or 40 years, to be honest, and since I've been about 18 years old. And so it's one of those things where as I kind of dug through them, I realized how much I had learned, how much people had taught me the amazing people I'd worked with and, and the mentors that I had, and then it was time to kind of package something to pass on, you know, kind of the, to pay it forward, if you will, of what they, they gave to me and how to, how do I pass it forward? And so I kind of took a little different twist to it is that I, I boiled it down to kind of like what I call the five bedrock skills that they taught me and that I've, you know, I've demonstrated and her, you know, seen in other people that really make innovators unique uh, and entrepreneurs kind of like really successful. And so it's kind of boiled down to these five essential skills that innovators have. And to be honest, we all have them. And so innovators aren't born, they're, they're, they're really, so, they're, so, they teach themselves. And so part of it is to realize that they double down on some of these skills.
0: Let's t- define the language, because I think it's important yes. that we understand the same thing.
1: What is yeah. an innovator? So to me, the, an innovator is uh, is different than an inventor, right? An inventor is somebody who finds a unique technical way to do something and if I'm an inventor, I have patents. But an innovator it really is about building something that 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 changes society and changes the way we we live and changes the way we work. And so you start to realize that a lot of times there's no patents, but there's there's innovation. And I always I always compare things like if uh here in the United States we have something called birds, which are scooters. And if you compare a, a Segway, which is a very sophisticated scooter, I'd say that's an invention. But birds have actually changed the way that we travel in urban cities, and so all of a sudden you start to realize one is an innovation, which is birds, and the other was intervention. It's great, but it it really didn't change the way everybody did something, and so that's really kind of the essence. Of right. So it innovators disrupt. Yeah, yeah. Innovators disrupt. Innovators actually treat things like this. Is where like again, sales sales is also about disruption, right? It's about actually changing the way people do things, and it's about helping people make progress. And so, you know, an essential part of an innovation is a sales force and basically being able to help people figure out how to buy their products so they can make progress. And so to me, it's all kind of connected in that notion of like, it's not about finding one unique way to do something, but about helping many, many people make progress.
0: Okay. So I want to look at innovation from both the lens of uh, going out and creating or disrupting the way a business is done, but also yep. how we innovate internally, because I think yeah. so many of us spend our lives coming up with great ideas, and then uh-huh. finally, the hardest sell. So, In terms of getting your head in the right place, first of all, how do you have to get your head lined yeah. up? What intent do you have to bring to the party, and what level of planning and preparation uh, is yeah. necessary so that you don't end up being shot down by your own side. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I always
1: say that the ideas are the cheapest part of innovating, yeah. and they're usually very plentiful. And to be honest, I, the way I, I talk about it is idea, good ideas always come back, right? And so people have always tried to capture every idea they have. And, and ultimately, to be honest, the ideas are 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 only relevant as they fit into context. And so to me... What's really, really important here is, is being able to understand and help understand the struggling moment that your customers have or that your prospects have, or the people that you're trying to help. And so it's about not only who, but when, where, and why would they pick up a new product? And so ultimately it's this aspect of, of not how, what, how, and how much most people start with the product. And what I would say is we always start, innovators always start with the customer demand is actually created inside people and demand is actually can be dormant if there's no solution. The way that we've always talked about it before, the way I was taught was like supply creates demand. And the reality is it's struggling moments that create demand. And that's one of the skills of what we call uncovering demand is what innovators and entrepreneurs know how to do is see where the struggling moments are in people's lives and do something about it. This is really interesting. Cause I mean, I have to say, first of all, thank you.
0: Since our first conversation about two years ago, I feel that my thinking has progressed in leaps and bounds, that you've been instrumental in that, certainly catalytic. And understanding the whole concept of working backwards from the job to be done and where the customer is in their journey and the struggling moments has forced me to also align or tie up with that the question, why do people do what they do? Right, and put it in the context of the moment that you find your customer in. If you don't do that, then chances are you're only getting part of the picture. That's right. Um, so that's right. I'm really curious about the people so, side.
1: Yeah. Um, so so that's really one of the one of the very first skills I talk about is what I call empathetic perspective, which yeah. is really good entrepreneurs and 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 innovators. They can sit in other people's roles they can actually see what they see and feel what they see feel what they feel but they but ultimately they're disconnected from their judgment meaning i'm not judging how the finance guy would look at it or how the customer would look at it or how you know the investor would look at it what I'm doing is that I can actually see what they would, I can see it from their perspective and understand how they would adjust. And so it's almost like, you know, learning how to play these different roles and ultimately really good innovators and entrepreneurs can see it from multiple perspectives. You know, like I always say, like like, like see it from all these different ways that then they can actually see problems or see conflict or see opportunities that most people can't because they actually know how to, to sit in other people's positions. This is really important. And I learned this from another one
0: of my partners and mentors, Simon Byrne. And he says that components don't make patterns, the connections do. And the the problem is that as we help our customers move through the chaos and make progress, we first of all have to lead. And we have to help them understand what the connections are, because all they can see are the different elements, and it's random and chaotic. That's right. And they'll come into the chaos and then bounce back out again, and they'll never make it over that chasm of chaos. And I think that's where we as innovators have to help people make that intellectual shortcut. How do you do that when the allure of the status quo is so strong? Because there's one other thing. They fear getting it wrong. If yes. they do nothing, then it's everyone's fault. Yep. But if they put their signature on the contract, now their head and their career are on the block.
1: That's right. Well, well, part of it is to actually seek the people who want to make progress. Because I always feel the people who have high standards and want to make progress are people who have to be courageous in the first place. And so part of this is to realize that that one is, I always try to put the reference point of risk. And most people take the reference point of risk around like, well, what I'm doing now is okay. But the reality is, is it's as risky to do nothing that it is to do something. Well, that's playing, that's playing not to lose. rather than That's correct. And so getting people to understand what's their definition of risk and what they are, they're really afraid of. It really gets to one of the other skills, which is what I call prototyping to learn which is a lot of times when we change, we actually don't, we assume we have to have the answer before we get there. And so a lot of times we end up prototyping to verify, but what I was taught very early on was prototyping to learn and how to make the small mistakes to understand how not to make the big mistakes, but to learn along the way. And this is where there's this strange analogy where most people who observe what I do call say, oh, you failed here, oh, you failed there. And I look at it and go, I don't think I failed at all. I learned this, and I learned that, and I learned. So they're confusing the word failing with learning. And so well, part of that
0: is- this is- really important. And again, investors, senior leadership, please yes. listen to what Bob has just said. You need to go looking for evidence to prove yourselves wrong, not to validate your current thesis. Because yes. if you're going looking to prove yourself right, you're going to get beaten at some point, because yes. you're going to be blind because of your lazy why. Do not well, fall it's the lazy, the lazy,
1: it's why. it's exactly right. It's the lazy why because at some point the why is actually very, very important. And it's usually social, emotional, and functional. It's it's sets of things. There's not one reason why somebody does something, but there's multiple reasons. But they travel in sets. And being able to understand that is so critical. And being able to uh, see it from their perspective, and again the irrational behavior becomes rational with context. And so part of it is being able to understand those kinds of things, but also then being able to prototype to make sure we understand how they can make the progress. So there's a book that I, I, I this is a notebook that I have here from, uh, from 1990. And so this is, this is my book, but this is from Dr. Taguchi back. And he says, basically write a book. But in 1990, I was in Cologne, Germany. And one of the things that I have is this this this, it says right here, How do they test? And it says in the West, we test basically to prove our hypotheses. But in Japan, they test because they don't know. And so what happens is is the reason why this is such an important distinction is the fact is is like at some point, we don't feel we can even test until we know. And what the Japanese were doing is they were testing to when basically they didn't know. And so most of the time, I don't actually have a hypothesis. I actually will start testing to learn how it's going to work to actually build hypotheses. And so you start to realize that I'm starting to use empirical data as opposed to theoretical data. And ultimately as an innovator, I have to work more in empir- empirical data, like real data of what's happening and see the anomalies than it is about actually trying to prove what I know. And so that's where I think the, the gift of dyslexia has been so useful for me is because everybody else would say they have the answer. And I would always say like, I have no idea what the answer is. How do I find it fast enough? This is really interesting because I've suddenly made a connection
0: between how I train and coach because I'm always taking live evidence and data. Yes. And I'm working off that rather than uh, something that they're giving me as an answer that they think I want to hear. Exactly. Um, and I'm not taking anything at face value. So I'm triangulating everything. If I hear an anomaly, I'm looking for other clusters. That's right.
1: I always say anomalies, you know, embedded in anomalies of the past is the DNA of the future. And what happens is most people throw anomalies out. And what I would say is anomalies really are basically the, have all that information of what we're going to be doing in the future. And we need to actually understand why the anomaly happened, not just, oh, we need to throw it out or try to justify where
0: it fits. Right. So this then must be pointing back to the causal links. Exactly. uh, the intersectional moments, partly, yes. yep. uh, but um where there's friction, where there's handover, where there's exactly. manual entry, manual error, you know, all that kind of stuff. It's the messy end that yes. they've they've probably grown used to because
1: they, it wasn't designed into the business, it morphed into it. Right, it was a, right? almost a secondary thought and that they actually yeah. all of a sudden they had they created what we call workarounds. Like, oh, I have to do this, or, you know, yeah, I have yeah. to do that. And so the workarounds are actually all the early signs of where I can innovate. <laughs> ah, right, okay. Right, and so part of this is being able to, so, so one of the other skills is what I call causal structures is that really good innovators and entrepreneurs are curious about how things work and want to have a mental model of how things work And when they can see where the anomalies are and when anomalies don't fit the way it works, that that, that gives them the opportunity to say, all right, maybe there's a new way. Maybe there's a different way. Where most people are trying to reduce anomalies, I'm actually trying to create anomalies because it actually informs me way more very early in the development of products.
0: Yeah. And I want to stress test my systems, my processes, my
1: business, because if I can push it to breaking point and it doesn't break, then it tells me I can go further. I'm building a couple of products myself. One is around helping people kind of figure out what they want to do next in their career. And so I I started by building out, I've been doing a bunch of research around it. I understand kind of what causes people to say today's the day they're going to leave. I end up building a process and I coach 10 people through it, pretty heavy, almost eight weeks long. And then what I do is I take and build an automated process where I actually make it asynchronous. And then what I did is I literally tried to do it in, in like half the time. I wanted to know what at what point could I would it break where only half the people could actually finish it. And so one of the prototypes is about actually pushing it so it will break. So I know where it will break and what will break. Right? Well, the good news. And so that's so this is where before I'm launching the product, I'm actually already designing it to basically say where are those pinch points? Where are the, where are the things where people kind of drop out? How, how come they get to like three step three, but then they can't get past step three. All right, I got to walk. So it allows me to know where to focus as opposed to just helping people do it over and over again. And so as I recruit people to help me do this, I let them know, like, this is a prototype. This is what I'm going to do. This might be frustrating. I need to know where it is. And they're giving me feedbacks of feedback. And I'm, and I'm, you know, trying to make, the, make it fail. I'm not trying to make it successful because I, I know it works because I got it to work before, but now it's about stress testing it. So I'm well, Interestingly
0: enough, um, the gold standard for online learning comp- course completion is 3%.
1: Yeah, well, and what I would say is that I've, I've gotten it to a point where if you're looking at it as gen pop or just kind of average across everything, and that's how it's going to come out, and that becomes acceptable. But to me, that's totally unacceptable. And so part of it is, how do I design when people are really, really ready to take progress? And so to me, I want 80% plus completion and the 20% are the anomalies that then help me figure out what else I have to do. But ultimately, I'm trying to design to make sure that everybody can complete. But at some point, I might actually have to have higher standards to let people in because some people aren't ready to do this. But Bob, something, something troubles me about the species. and.
0: In the green room, I said, you know, we should probably talk about whether free will really exists. Yeah, yeah. Sure, mostly it doesn't. Because if it did, and if rational thought existed, then businesses and organizations wouldn't run processes and systems that have an average failure rate in the high 95s, 97% yes. mark rate, going up to 99 and north of that, yes. uh, and consider that to be an acceptable baseline Without
1: asking the question, what the hell is yeah. there not a better way? This is where I think we have the wrong perspective on it, right? We try to look at, so two things is, one is, what is our reference point? And most people, reference point is actually all the subcomponents. I, I got the leads, the leads would turn into sales, sales turn into, you know, like what's, what is every s- sub step? But the thing that Deming would always say is sometimes the the, the the subsystems have to work at not optimal to make the overall system optimal. And so what happens is we end up trying to sub-optimize each step. And so we understand who it's not anyone's fault, but in the end, it's a really efficient system that is not effective at all. And so part of this is getting perspective and being able to understand and to be honest, getting leaders to actually take a step back and look at the, the bigger picture as opposed to trying to actually make each of the subcomponents or subsystems you know, optimal when, when to be honest, they don't know, like you said, the interactions or the, the interdependencies between the systems. Right. Okay. Thank God someone else actually gets this. It's, it's, it's a big well, problem. It's a big well, problem. Th-
0: think about this, because this is a real tangible problem. And it frankly really pisses me off. Okay. The last seven years, we have seen the proliferation, the explosion of MarTech, sales tech, sales enablement, every form of data, data analysis, AI. We've got consultancies, coaches, growth consultancies, SEO, marketing, and all of these parasites sucking Uh on the blood and guts in this red ocean full of people whose performance in the last seven years has gone from an average quota attainment of 60 65%, seven years ago, to today, below 40%, rapidly approaching 30 yep. How can you have those tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of providers leeching off this marketplace, and performance has
1: halved? Yep. I call this a, a, a horizontal problem, meaning most of the things of what they're doing is they're looking at the steps in the process, and they're trying to optimize each vertical step in the process. And they're not actually looking at the horizontal part of the process and the connections between them. So this is one of those things where like when I was doing uh, so I ran a builder and we built homes, right. And we got a roughly about a thousand leads a month and we'd close 20 houses more or less. So 2%, you'd look at it and go, okay, we need to make this better. And what would happen is marketing would want to actually go from two a thousand to 2000 leads. And I would say, no, I want to go from a thousand leads to 200 leads. And they're like, why would you want to do that? I'm like, I want people to be but more they want qualified. there be 800 crap ones. Right. Well, what happens is, is we actually built, like, I called it a speed bump, but we put, a, put some information in front of it to say, like, why in the world do you want to move? Help us understand that. And then we can understand the better way to actually serve you. Though we would have people come, we had a huge abandonment rate. But anybody who actually made it all the way through that survey and actually helped us and told us what they were looking for, I actually was able to close, you know, almost 40% of them. And so and all what, of a sudden, went, rate uh, rise from yeah, it went from two percent to forty percent. I went from thousand right, so leads to two hundred. Yes, and but part of it was to realize that sometimes people would come and they would ban it because they didn't know how to answer the question, and then they go figure out how to answer the question, and they come back. And so part of it was I would actually get people who were very very you know motivated to move, but didn't actually know how to do it. And so that's how we end up generating leads and basically saying, all right, now this is how we can help you. But without them willing to share, it's like a bunch of people going like, oh, I'd like to move, but I don't really want to work that hard. Well, if they're not willing to work, moving is hard, right? The other thing that I realized is I was not in the building business. I was actually in the moving business. My job was to get people from their old house to a new house. And ultimately, I realized that there were people who couldn't afford my house, but they could afford a house of somebody who wanted to buy my house. So I ended up selling a 1,000 new homes, but I actually helped sell over 500 used homes on top of that because I helped them sell their old house. Right, And so part of this is to realize we we think we're the center of the plate, we're the most important thing, but nine times out of 10, we're more the mustard on the sandwich than the meat. Yeah, (laughs) we're a moving part. Exactly. And and this is
0: why um, I think people really need to become very aware of the whole concept of wicked problems, because if you don't understand that your customer doesn't care about you, your company, your product, your service... They don't care about your quota and they really don't care about your shareholders' valuation. So, yeah, yeah. what they really do care about is can they solve their problem That's and right. can you help them deliver against the job to be done? That's now, right. When you start looking at the job to be done in companies that have either public share, uh, shares out in the public domain or they're in venture capital, yep. you need to understand that the shareholder's job to be done is the job that filters through the culture of the rest of the organization. So if the general partners need to raise another fund, the valuation is focused on that, which means that the leaders they recruit, the managers they hire, the pressure they put on their salespeople and their marketing, and the miserable experience their customers
1: have Uh will be generated by the general partner's job to be done. That's right, but there's 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 actually two kinds of value. There's what I call supply side value and demand side value. yeah, demand side value is basically what progress are you helping somebody make and what are they willing to pay you in order to make that progress? That is basically all from the demand side, right? What they're willing to pay for the problem they have and the solution that you're willing to give them, right? That's the first part of value. If you don't have that value, that there's 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 no other value to be had. The second part of value, though, is then how do I run the company with enough margins to deliver that value to the customer in a way that it generates profit for the investors who put it there? And so that's called supply side value. And what you realize is that too many people, it, it, at some point in time, you have to actually focus on demand side value first, because otherwise you have all these companies that can actually have huge valuations from a supply side, but actually never make a profit because they actually don't know how to serve the customer that well. Well, this so it's starting
0: to be really interesting because today, about a third of all SaaS companies have venture or private equity uh, backing. Well, they did have backing. Now, what they've got probably is a major millstone because for the last 12 years, none of those businesses have ever had to make a profit. Yep. Investors like Sequoia, Y Combinator, yep. and Tiger have all come out and said, You got to make a profit or you're dead yep. to us. Now, yep. None of the managers, none of the leaders, none of the salespeople have ever made a profit. How do these businesses adapt, innovate, so that they can go to make a profit in three to six months when they were taking 18 to
1: 36 months before? So that's actually one of the, that's the fifth skill, which I call identifying and managing trade-offs. They actually have to start to choose what to suck at. Most people try to be good at everything, which makes you actually good at nothing. One of the people I've worked with for a long time, Jason Freed says it best. You're better off with a kick-ass half than a half-ass hole. <laughs> and too many times they're just trying to add more and more features. And what happens is when you add too many features, then people want a discount because they don't actually want all the features that you're, you've put in it. And so you're like, oh, I love your product, but I don't really need this you know, this 20%. Like, can I get a discount? And so part of it is, is we don't realize that at some point in time, we have to understand the customer and the progress they're trying to make. And if we offer them too much, they actually want a discount. And so this is where we have to be way better at understanding what to not to be good at. Think of the Apple iPhone when it launched; it had no text capability at all, none. Yeah. And you couldn't deli- you, uh, What's it? You couldn't cut and paste. You couldn't cut and paste. There's a whole bunch of stuff, and you start to realize like they're better off having the the three things it was there for, which was a phone, a PDA, and a music player, and it did all of those very well. And at the same time, when people started to do other things, they had new struggling moments and they had to add things. They didn't try to make it the best thing out of the hat. They tried to make it good enough when they put the three things together. And that's the point is that every time an innovation comes, it actually creates new struggling moments and you're better off learning those other things. But what are the three, four, five things that really create the demand side value that literally you can build off of what's happened is we've tried to build everything to be so big and then we're going to cost reduce it to make it profitable. And we almost always fail at that, always. Right, okay. So this again, if you're going to
0: innovate, you also have to be patient and you have to have a long-term view and you have to be ready to fail. But so few leaders and investors, I remember um, placing uh, a marketing director and in the interview, I remember the CFO saying, yeah, great. Love the idea that you're going to experiment, but can you not do the ones that fail? And he said it as a joke, but it turns out he didn't mean, he did mean
1: it. Yeah, yeah. I think part of this is to realize like you need a, a level of patience. But the fact is, is this is why I'm, I'm so against things like a roadmap. The roadmap is telling me what I'm going to go build in 12 or 24 months. And investors need it because they want to say where the product's going. But the reality is, is in 12 or 24 months, what I'm gonna approach might be completely different. And then I have to spend all this time affecting everybody else's kind of uh, assumptions of what I was gonna do. But the reality is what we should do, the roadmap should really be about the struggling moments we're gonna go after, because at some point the solutions might, they'll they'll be way better formed when we're there than trying to guess about them now, because most planning and innovation is about guessing. It's It's not real. And so what happens is is that but there's there's way more unknown than there is known. And so what we want to do is is innovation is really more about a learning process of how do I learn as fast as I can and more, most reproducible as as I can. That's what I was taught, you know, very very young. In, in the um, book, I talk about this notion of what I call young Bob, which is what I what I what I did what I was what I did when I came out of engineering school or business school. Like this is what they taught me to do. And then I talk about enlightened Bob, and it's there's a there's a dimension of patience but there's also a a notion of like i'm not going to sit around and wait and so it's it's patience but i need to be constantly learning and iterating and and iteration is actually part of that key of being able to prototype to learn fast right okay
0: so this is clearly a learned skill yes. you had some phenomenal mentors so tell me this if if you find yourself in a situation where you're facing these struggling moments in your own life
1: how do you prepare yourself to become an innovator yeah so the thing is is we actually all innovate every every week every every day think about when you go to plan you know groceries for the week or you try to tr- plan a vacation you got to think about who's going with you you got to think about what what does progress really look like you have to be able to understand everybody's different perspective you want to prototype different ways in which to kind of where you could go and what you could do and then ultimately you got to make trade offs because of time and money and, and kind of, uh, everybody's expectations. So these five skills, we all possess them, but what's interesting is that innovators and entrepreneurs have taken it to like, you know, a 10 X level. They're, they're not just thinking about other people's perspective. They're talking to other people to get their perspective. They're actually prototyping and, and try to like trying to develop. So my thing is, is we all do this. It's just learning how to do it more and more and more and, and more efficiently and more effectively. And so it's in typically nobody has all five of these skills. And I would say I'm not good at necessarily all five of them, but when I put a team together, I make sure that I have all five of these skills on my team because I know we're gonna, that's what's gonna help me win. Right. Okay, but I think what I'm
0: also picking up on this is that the team needs to be made up of a diverse group of thinkers who invest significant upfront time understanding the problem and having those intersectional moments where people from different perspectives are looking at the same issue at the same time. And where there is that friction, new ideas come out. And that's exactly the, that's exactly. the seed of innovation.
1: That's exactly right. That's exactly right. right. Because what happens is we end up saying, well, oh, it's got to be easy or it's got to be faster. What does that mean? Easier than what? There's 22 different dimensions of easy like easy to put in, easy to install, easy to uh, update e- like, what does easy mean? <laughs> and so you start to realize like we, we don't dig past that complexity. we don't dig we don't dig past the the, the, the the crust. And what you realize is when you get down to the crust or below into the foundation, you know, right the, the bedrock, you start to realize like that's where the real stuff happens. And so, part of this is realizing that it's more than just talking to people. It's it's interrogating them. It's 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 contradicting them to actually understand the frictional coefficients, as you said. How do we actually understand where where the real struggles are, and what are the outcomes that are liberating for them, right? And we talked about this notion of free will. Is like, first of all, if people can't choose, and there isn't the right of free will, then the fact is, is you really can't sell them right they have to pick one way or another and so part of this is that this is the the beauty of this is being able to understand who's really choosing to to pull your product into into their lives and what are they actually getting rid of because of that and what is the new behavior and what is the risk let's understand that problem space before i actually put any solutions in their mind interesting okay so if we look at uh
0: innovation in conjunction with exnovation so yes. how do we build on what is already great and yep. double down on that whilst also disrupting because i think part of the problem is as a species we tend to polarize and it's either or it's black or white it's republican yep. or democrat and um i think what we've forgotten is we've sacrificed effectiveness and relationships for efficiency and automation and speed yep. Yep, uh, and I think, so it, I think it's a pendulum, screw, right? It yeah. swung one way and swings the other. Uh, and we, so we can screw up at scale and with massive costs, with lasting effect, but we can do it with massive uh, impact. Um, the, the other thing is that I don't think there is enough reflection. I, I just sense that we aren't spending enough time oh, asking wow. ourselves the question well, what if? If only. Um, How good it get? If I don't,
1: I don't think we, we are, we're skilled in the reflective kind of tools. Like I think the fact is, is like what we try to do is we reflect and try to find cause. We re- reflect and try to find blame. We reflect and try to figure out who didn't do what they were supposed to do, as opposed to or oh, confirm demi-wise. our previous belief. That's right. And and what Deming would say is, you know, 85% of all problems are system problems, not people problems. And so the, 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 the reflective learning is, is actually really, really important because at some point we can actually, we we can prevent what's going to happen. Like every time there's a problem, there's actually two problems. One is to fix the problem. The second is how do we prevent the problem from happening again? Right. And most people only fix the problem and then it just keeps happening again and again and again. So I think part of this is being able to realize like at some point, how, how do we frame what we're supposed to be doing? The other thing is, is most people were articulated as a problem, but in the end, we're not actually, we're trying to remove a problem, but just because we remove it doesn't mean that, that, that we're not going to cause another one. And so trying to understand what I call the function space versus the problem space is a really important thing about what's the progress they're trying to make. Right. Cause it's like, well, if I just make it, you know, easier, like, well, how easy is easy? So what happens is, so for example, I've had things where if I do it too easy, they don't know they did it. <laughs> yeah. But you you right. use the, the example
0: of having to add some friction by adding fresh eggs. Uh, exactly.
1: The, the, uh, exactly. Yeah, exactly. That kind of thing. Or, or like, you know what, back in the day when you had to install something, we would install it so fast that people would install it three times because they didn't know. So we just delayed we made the install take about fifteen seconds, which made everybody go like, "Okay, it's installed." <laughs> <laughs> right? St- stupid things like that. But this this is where you have to be able to understand how what does progress really mean. And so it's not just the problem, but it's the outcomes that they want on the other side. And nine times out of ten, the problem they describe is like, "Ooh, it's you know, I'm very frustrated because it's slow." We would assume they want it faster, but they actually want to do more, not faster. So okay. So to... if we're looking for causal
0: link. Between 85% of problems being system problems. Yep. If I were to challenge Deming, I would say that often those systems are a product of the people that you have hired yes. and what the lack of clarity, the ambiguity yes. uh, you've allowed to creep in to what is expected and what yes. is communicated. Is
1: that yeah. fair? That's, that's how he would describe that system as well, is that that you you didn't onboard the employees the right way. They don't have the right checks in place. It's the system wrapped around it. And so so most of the time, it's not the fact that the person's doing a bad job or wants to do a bad job. It's that they can't do a good job, given the fact of what how the system is designed. And so this then raises yet another question.
0: When... Senior executives, leadership, and management are looking for where the blame lies. Would it not make a lot more sense to look in the mirror instead of looking for
1: oh. poor, some poor sap to scapegoat? So that's that's usually when I work with teams or work with executive teams. That's the first the first thing I try to do is understand where they're going to cast blame, and then what we do is we turn the, turn the mirror on them and say, "How is this not your problem?" Because none of them actually wanted to do it. Like like at some point in time, it's like there are cases where there are people doing wrong things but for the most part, not unethical. And they're doing wrong things because it's either too hard or the system is wrong. And so one is getting them to actually identify the problems and then going deeper, getting past the pabulum, getting past the fantasy nightmare to down to this causal layer. And now it becomes a system problem. And that is totally on their plate. Okay. This is this but- is where when, when you replace somebody three, like, you know, we have a new VP of sales, we have another. Another new new people. It's like at some point in time, is it a people problem or do we have actually a sales process problem? Often it's a a mix of both, but more often than not. If it's three times and you've literally hired people that you think are the best people to fit in that position, by the third time, you need to be looking at it and saying it's not a people problem, it's a system problem.
0: Yeah, Uh, 100%. No, No pushback there from me on that. Okay, tell me this. We're going into a period of significant turmoil massive change and most of this is cyclical and to a large extent can at least be planned for and prepared for but because people have had their nose to the grindstone they probably haven't been looking at that bigger picture they may have gone yep. from the macro to the mi- um sorry the micro to the macro they haven't really yep. looked at the meta level so In a world where there will be a lot of surprises that are Mm. unknown and unplanned for, what does an organization need to do to create innovation within its ranks so that they can adapt to unknown situations without snapping and without everyone leaving?
1: Well. The first thing is, is most of the time in these types of times, people's reference point is, is the past. It's what we've been doing. And what they need to do is change the reference point to what is the struggling moments of your customer now, because they used to struggle with X and now they struggle with Y and you're trying to sell them for X, but they actually want to buy for Y. And so the first thing they have to do is actually understand how's the language going to change around the struggling moments that, you know, your customer is going to have. Because in some cases, it might actually be the same solution, but now you have to talk about it as cost savings or basically efficiency or increasing productivity versus basically being able to uh, increase capacity. And so you, start to re- you have to start with what, how, is the, how is the recession going to play out to your customers? If you don't understand the value pro- how the value proposition is going to change, then at some point in time, you're going to constantly be reducing and, and trying to make yourself more efficient around the old proposition as opposed to the new proposition. That's the first thing. Okay. The second thing is, is it gets back to trade-offs. As we get into the recession, there'll be certain things that people are willing to give up in order to get it. I'm willing to actually do it a little bit faster, or I'm willing to pay a little bit more, or in some cases I can't pay as much more, but I'm willing to do it over a period of time. And so you start to realize what are the new constraints they have wrapped around them that enable them to have to buy differently, right? This is all what I call helping to uncover demand. And what, what happens in a recession, I, I personally love recessions because it forces everybody to kind of step back, strip back, understand what's really essential to what they want to do. And they all still want to make progress, but it's a chance for them to kind of almost like lean up. So then when they when, when we come out of it, they can grow. And it's a chance for behavior change. Like like you said, we're, we're creatures of habit. Well, a recession is going to actually cause people to change behavior. And what you could say is irrational, but it's actually not rational at all. It's very rational, but we don't understand their context. So the more we can understand their context, the more we can understand then what we should do with our product or service. So an important lesson here then, if you're going to understand
0: the job to be done Mm -hmm. and you're going to understand the buyer's journey, their struggling moments, is it's all about context and connection. And understanding the red thread that runs through all of that. That's right. Understanding handover. Because the struggling moments may come from within as, from, as well as from without. A lot of this stuff may uh, be going on because of the impact of other departments' work and how that affects them or the ripple effect of them doing a good or an average or a oh. bad job uh, on other parts of the business and then it affecting the customer and then it coming back. Because yep. you've got to understand at the end of the day, the customer doesn't care which bit of the business
1: it's dealing with. It's all yep. one business. That's correct. That's correct. Um, so the other part of this is to realize we've put a lot of things in place that just we just don't need. <laughs> mm. And so part of this is being able to start to test because when we start to either lay off or, or cut back, what happens is we think that well you know uh, it's you know the work that the person that we laid off did doesn't go away, and so everybody's got to work a little bit more. And so all of a sudden you have to realize that as everybody's trying to pick up whatever's kind of left, that the processes are 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 broken. <laughs> and that they actually need to rethink them. And so part of this is as they're doing it, they need to think about how do we, so this is what I would call continuous improvement or basically sustaining innovations on the supply side to help me actually get things in line where what I would call is disruptive innovations happen on the demand side. Say that again. The, the
0: the continuous improvement is on the supply side.
1: Yeah. So it's how do it's I different. how do I actually make this a little bit better? How do we actually strip this back? How do we actually have new metrics? How do we actually rethink the way we want to do this kind of work or like onboarding, for example? Like all of a sudden we went from 10 people to five people. What's the new onboarding process? Because we can't onboard the way we used to because we don't have as many people. <laughs> right? Now that is really interesting. And so and so part of it, most of the people are trying to work the old process with less people as opposed to rethinking how to actually you know, redesign the process to be more effective with less people. The problem with most
0: of our generals is they're preparing to fight the last war. And the same thing goes with businesses. So again, I'm really curious about how one might apply this in the context of culture change. Because if I look at the way the market is moving, I'm convinced that there will be a massive cull across sales because, frankly, order takers, are going to be replaced by the likes of Siri, Alexa, and Intelligent Websites, because the only value they bring to the customer really uh, is discounting. They're not bringing any significant value to their understanding or the furthering of their uh, understanding. But
1: this this is where what I would say is we want everybody to work to the top of their professional ability. And taking an order is not to the top of your professional ability. Yeah. what you realize is that salespeople are essential to helping people understand the context they're in, help them frame the trade-offs they have to make, be able to actually understand the progress that's possible, giving them new metrics. Like, like, like this is where my belief is we might actually have less salespeople doing kind of the transactional piece, but we still need people to help people understand what problem do they have, what progress they're trying to make, how our product fits into it, because they don't have the language. They don't understand, like most, most companies only know the problem they have. They don't know anything about the solution. And so we're advertising the solution and they're literally like, I don't even know what that is. All I know is I have this problem. We need salespeople to kind of step up to do the higher order kind of help, which is helping them with the language, helping understand where they are in space and time, actually understanding the forces, understanding how to make trade-offs, like all these other things. The order part, if they've already decided and it's really about the logistics of actually just just acquiring, like you said, that's going to be automated within 10 years, for sure. Well, I think what's really interesting is that the sales profession has
0: done itself a monstrous disservice because what we've done is we've divided up the different functions and components of the sales process. And we've made it efficient and effective for, or if given the illusion of being effective for ourselves, but from the customer's perspective, it creates dissonance. It creates friction more often than not, because it's self-serving. Selling is the facilitation of buying. It's helping the customer make the best decision for today and the future, whether it involves you or not. Obviously, we would like it to involve us.
1: But if we're not the right fit, we have an obligation to withdraw and refer. Right, and refer, that's exactly right. But this is where I think the thing is, is I'm not sure I would call it the sales, the sales executives have done it a disservice because when you really look at the process of sales, it's run by a combination of finance and marketing, not by sales. Sales has almost like the day-to-day management pieces, but the structure of that process has been defined by somebody else usually. And they're stuck in there as being order takers because of the way they did it. And so this is where I always say form follows function. And what we haven't thought about is what's the function of helping people facilitate the process of, of learning and buying. And so to be honest, it's that that's really at the core of this is that, that, you know, most professional sales organizations understand around the fact that there's, there's, there's a bigger process, but the reality is like, we have, that we have to facilitate them through the process. And at some point in time, we got to be conscious of their context, not ours. And nobody cares where they are in our sales process, but they care where they are in their buying process. Right. Okay. So this again suggests that
0: there is a really important human skill, which is the ability to understand the individual motivations of Mm -hmm. the different key component players and help them recognize how working with you buying your product or your service is going to serve their part of the job to be done so most of this is about cooperation co-development choreography
1: and synchronization is that right that's right that's exactly right and understanding the trade-offs what 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 do we need to do? What are the essential things we need to do? And one of the things that we can do okay, but but don't really matter. I always say like, if you look at like Ryanair or Southwest Airlines, which are the low cost airlines, right? They understand that snacks have no role in why people fly their planes and they don't offer really good snacks. Though everybody complains about them, they don't care because getting there on time, getting to the right airport, basically cheaper than driving and and consistency is more important than actually the snacks. And so as much as you want to complain about snacks, they're not doing anything about it. <laughs> nope. Right? Well, and so that's I, the point is like, at some point, it's like, oh my gosh, we got all these complaints about snacks. We need to do something about it. It's like, nobody's not going to fly Ryanair because of the snacks. <laughs> but
0: again, I think far too often we worry about the opinions of the wrong people. And we pay attention to the headline of the moment instead of thinking ahead. And this is part of the reason why so many so-called innovations don't stick, because they're not really thinking beyond um, the immediate. One of the things I really like about your work is it forces you to think as the customer and it forces you to meet them where they are going to be and takes the, your sales process
1: completely out of the uh, the whole equation because no one gives a that you need to have one, but the thing is, is they don't need to know it, number one. Mm. And number two is, I saw a number that's like 67 or 68% of all proposals go uneven answered. People don't do any, make no decision from it. And the reality is, is how can that possibly be if we actually understand the progress we're trying to make and where they're going? Ultimately, they can't make trade-offs. And so part of it to me is a lot of that is because like if we have that many proposals that are going unanswered, the reality is like, that's a sales problem. And being able to help people understand what are the choices and nine times out of 10, it's either too big of a step or it's it's, it's not big enough, or they just don't know how to make the trade-off between the old system and the new system. And so this is where it's, again, i see that as a very large sales problem.
0: Right. Okay. So when you're talking about the trade-off between the old and the new, What you're really effectively talking about there is creating an intellectual shortcut that allows them to understand that the pain of change is substantially less than the pain of staying stuck, Yep, and that they have certainty that the new way will deliver the result that will not result in their anticipated
1: buyer's remorse, because they don't want to get the egg on their face. So for example, what happens is, is that, that they want, so for example, working with a company that sells into banks, right. And the whole thing is, is like, if they buy this product, it's like, well, they want their logo on it. They want the brand, they want the brand awareness on it. They want to have it integrated into the system. They want to, and to do that takes a whole bunch of time. And at the same time, it, it, it's, it takes some cash from our perspective. So one of the things we offered was, you know what, we can actually do it outside of your system so you can prototype it but it doesn't get this, this and that, and it doesn't actually have your logo on it, but it actually works through the system and we just interact with your system this way. And so we can say, we can do this one you know, in six weeks and get it up and running and try it, or we can do this one in six months, but then I'll have all these other things. And they're willing to sacrifice, if you will, having their logo and everything until it works. And what happens is we get a larger percentage because we're not doing that work, but at the same time as it grows, then they move over to the other thing. And so we actually create a half step for them as opposed to having to come up with you know a quarter million dollars in six months of time to implement something that we can do something now in six weeks. And so it's the trade-offs, though, are that we can't do it all. And so what are the things they're willing to give up in order to get, in order to move forward? Okay. So that
0: presumably then requires a significant transfer of trust yeah. early on. So having those conversations to mitigate their risk and Reduce their fear
1: of comeback. So part of it is part of it is is one to frame why they're doing it. What's what's the progress they're trying to make? And then we tell them stories of how we've done it at other places to help them understand. There's not one answer, but there's several different answers. And from that, they're able to then derive like what things will fit into their system. Nine times out of ten, we go in with one answer and one thing to help them with one. It might be okay. It might be a little, you know good, better, best, but it's not actually fundamentally different ways to help them mitigate their risk. Okay, okay. We, we 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 give them good, better, and best only in the notion to mitigate risk, but we actually don't understand that there's a whole bunch of other dimensions to risk that they have that are way beyond good, better, best. Right, okay,
0: so this then opens up yet another really interesting uh, aspect, <laughs> which is innovation also drives expansion sales the kind of relationship that you're talking about requires intimacy, it requires frequency of touch, and you can't understand your customer unless you're speaking to them consistently, you're seeing them in the context in which they
1: use your products and so on. The real growth comes from them. Every every innovation that solves one problem usually always causes another problem, right? So again, I go back to the iPhone. At some point boy, we could put all these things together. And then all of a sudden it could do all this stuff in internet. And then we had battery problems and then it got bigger and then it got to cameras like, like the struggling moments come as you actually start to use it one way. It's like, Oh, now it doesn't do this well. Okay. What are we going to go do about that? And so every product has its own evolution or how it should evolve, but it's all dependent upon the next level of struggling moments that, that one, as we have a list of a hundred things to solve, when you take that one away, then the next thing comes up. What is the next thing on people's list that actually caused them to say, I'm going to change again? Right. Okay. So right. so salespeople are really the facilitators of helping people navigate all, the, all the, the obstructions that are going to get in their way as they try to build and grow the business. Right. So in effect, what they're doing is they're architecting
0: with their senior customers yep. and they're helping them preempt and navigate the obstacles, identify the roadblocks, and identify the areas that they are currently working around so they can then prioritize where they innovate next. That's right. That's right. And, and by that's the all way, about it's not, ongoing not,
1: communication. Right. But the part is is it's not pre-planned. It's not like if they do A, then they're going to do B. It's like once they get to A, okay, when they get to A, it might be C, D, or F. And then based on that and their context, it might be F. And then okay, then they're going to go to something else. You know what I mean? Like it's not it's not a pre-programmed set of things you're going to do, but it's about having the touch points to know what are they struggling with next, and can you help? And even if you can't, who can you direct them to? It's the facilitator of progress is what a salesperson is. Absolutely. Very, very good. Okay. Look, Bob, we've
0: sadly come to the top of the hour, which is uh-huh. deeply depressing because that went really
1: quickly. Remind everyone the name of the book? Yeah, the name of the book is called Learning to Build. Uh, you can find it on Amazon. If you want to learn more about me, just uh, LinkedIn is the best place. Bob Mesta, M-O-E-S-T-A, and then uh, I've got a new podcast that I launched in the fall or in the spring called the uh, the Circuit Breaker, and it's uh, it's just uh, me and my business partner taking 30 minutes and kind of giving topics to go deep on, and and we uh, we argue and then we kind of clarify and then we give an example and then we come off of that and and give you an assignment to kind of help you think a little bit more as well. So it's kind of like Every time my office would get, the stuff would get a little wonky, I'd always just flip the circuit breaker for the entire office, and everything would come back to regular. So it's more or less like, <laughs> how do we just reset the circuit?
0: So it's all about the reset.
1: Yeah. Excellent. Okay. And if you were to
0: recommend one book by someone else to really understand
1: the whole process of effective innovation... I say, uh, uh, "How to Fly a Horse" is a really, really good book about kind of it. It goes back and talks about kind of the role that innovation has played through the years, and it, it talks about the Wright brothers, but other ones. It's probably one of the what I consider one of the best innovation books uh, that debunks this notion of, you know, you're born with it or that you're you're you know it's a it's a gift or it's only for you know a smart people or whatever. It, it basically talks about. It's about, you know, being able to, to have different perspectives and grit and and reps and, and being able to have a passion around it.
0: Well, I, I think part of it is um, how you play. Do you play to yes. win or play not to lose? Or do you play to keep the game going? And is your objective to take a bigger slice of the pie or to make the pie bigger? Okay. And I don't think there's what? enough of the latter.
1: I want to add one in there, because I think this is the thing that's missing is we try to play to win, but the when we play to win, we realize the rules are set by the financial people. Yeah, and so I actually say we want to play to help. Agreed. We want to play to help change behavior. We want to play to help people make progress. And when we can do that, to be honest, we're above and we're above the financial situation because at some point, once we know how to do that, the other aspects actually become easy. So playing to win, assumes you're going to play a game that the rules have already been defined. And my belief is in a lot of cases, especially when you're innovating, the rules are not defined yet. Excellent. Bob Mester, thank you. Thank you. So this is Marcus
0: Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you found this useful and insightful, and I'd be surprised if you didn't, then please like, comment, share, subscribe, tag someone who would benefit from listening. Feel free to go and leave an honest review, one, three, five stars, somewhere in between whatever, but just leave an honest review. Now, if you are looking to up your sales and uh, create more certainty, create more predictability and create an unstoppable business, then drop me a line and let's have a chat about coaching. Email me marcus at
1: last-last.com. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.